Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Greetings from a snowy Gretna, Nebraska this week. We're pretty snowed in here at Hetra, but that's not going to stop us. The show will go on. You're listening to the Not Just a Pony Ride podcast, the community that's exclusive to the EAS industry, where we believe the magic that happens with our equine partners is not only fun for our participants, but it's a skill, a science, a business, and for so many of us, a place to belong. I'm your host, Katie Ott, OT and CTRI here at Hetra in Gretna, Nebraska, and uh, we're excited to kick off another show. So today I have Lynn Acton. She was just a phenomenal woman to talk with. So much of what she said, I'm like, yes, yes, that's what we do here, and that's what we believe too. So um, it was nice to meet a kindred spirit here in the the horse world. She was such a joy to talk to, in fact, that we talked for a really long time. So this is part one of a part two series with Lynn and Shelby Schultz, our program director, also joined us for this uh, discussion. So you're going to get a little bit of everything in this episode. You are going to get part one of Lynn's thoughts on how to make horses feel safe. She wrote a book called What Do Horses Really Want? And it is just packed full of, of really good information. Um, today, she's going to talk a little bit about kind of her list of characteristics that she believes help horses feel safe. And you're going to get the first part of the list. You have to turn in, tune into part two for the rest of the list. Um, but specifically, we're going to talk about human body language, um, being aware of equine emotions, and using different learning modes to engage desired response. So enjoy this episode. We want to know what you think about it. Please um, go over to the Facebook page, um, go over to our Instagram, tell us what you think about the episode and um, leave us a review. So if you really like this show, you really like this episode, go down, give us a five-star rating and review it and tell us what you think. Those reviews help us continue to stay in front of the audience that we're really trying to reach so that ultimately we can touch more participant lives because that's what we're all about, right? Okay, well, enjoy, Lynn. Thanks for stopping by the show, Lynn. We're excited to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, why don't we get started with telling everybody who you are and um, your background a little bit, how how our paths crossed here. Well, I I have, uh, I actually was involved with a therapeutic riding program in the early 90s, uh, shortly after I got my uh, riding instructor certification, and we had a program for uh, youth at risk. And so we had able-bodied kids, but some behavior and and, um, cognitive challenges. And at the same time, I was doing uh, therapy dogs and was a certified uh, tester for Delta Society's pet partners. So I have a a kind of a double interest in the animal-assisted therapy world. And since then, I've done a variety of different things. I grew up riding hunt seat, um, trading, riding, riding privileges for barn chores with a, for the horse dealer. So I got to ride all kinds of different horses, um, lots of adventures. And I've, I've ridden hunt seat, Western trails, classical dressage. Uh, my Arab was the 2018 world champion in equagility. That's ridden agility. Uh, I've been a CHA certified instructor since 94. Um, so I've got a big a variety, variety of background in the horse world. 
And in 2012, I fostered a pony who was written off by her previous trainer as dangerous. Um, wouldn't let kids anywhere near her. He obviously was afraid to ride her. Uh, it was clear to me that she was dangerous because she was afraid and that I had to dramatically change the way I approached her training. I knew that if I approached her with the standard pressure release, negative reinforcement training, we were gonna go nowhere good. So I made a dramatic change. I focused on making her feel safe. That was my priority. The obedience I didn't worry about as long as she was she was behaved safely with people, which she, she was willing to do. Um, so, uh, and I saw an incredible change in her. Within a few months, she was doing agility with me. The following year, she was doing agility with my grandchildren. Um, so I had to find out what went right. You know, so, something went really right here, much better than I had dared to hope. So I took my horse background experience and added my academic background in sociology and system science. And I did a lot of research, which I like to do anyway. And I'm fascinated with horse, how horses behave, how they feel, how they learn, the social dynamics of, uh, of domestic and free roaming herds. So I put all that together and I also researched different training techniques and philosophies, uh, current and historical, and tested that against my own personal experience and my observations as a riding instructor. And some things became really clear as I looked at this. Um, horse herds survive on cooperation, not on competition. The, uh, the fallacy of, um, of the dominant leader in a horse herd is just that, it's a fallacy. So social connections to a horse means safety. Not having a, a strong leader, but social connections. And following the rules is their default, not pushing for rank because um, they're, you have to follow the rules in order to be a member of the social group. Otherwise you get kicked out of the group. So this, this sort of explained how I was getting such reliable behavior from Brandy, my foster pony. Um, following the rules came naturally to her and so did being cooperative as long as she felt safe. Mm -hmm. Most training programs, com common training programs now, the uh, sort of the standard is we need to be in charge. We need to make sure the horse is obedient. If the horse disobeys, we need to make sure the horse does obey. And very often the horse's emotional state is overlooked. And this is where the, the, where things can go very wrong. Um, common training programs tend to encourage adversarial relationships where the horse says, I'm anxious, this is too much pressure, I can't cope with this. And the person says you're being disobedient and ups the pressure. Mm. And then you have more disobedience in quotes and uh, more anxiety. And when you get a horse, go ahead. Yeah, that's just an interesting perspective as I think so many of us, um, you know, are familiar with the pressure release method and how we maintain control of our horses is different in different scenarios. Right. So, um, I'm thinking about like, if we're just like at Liberty or in a round pen with a horse, right. It's a little bit different than if we're mounted, um, with a rider, maybe that's fragile or something like that when we're expecting a certain type of behavior. So I'll let you continue, but I'm really excited to kind of get into kind of the different perspectives and what you think, um, you know, how your training and your research has led you to to look at that. 
Well, you you actually in, in therapeutic riding, you do have a very unique sort of situation where you don't have just one horse, one rider. You have a horse who needs to be handled by a lot of different people, ridden by a lot of different people, and you need them to be most reliable in situations where something might go wrong. Right. You've got you've got really in, in a lot of ways the ultimate challenge, and um, and that's why I I think that shifting the focus to the horse's feeling of safety can be um, a better thing for everybody. But um, so um, what I figured out was that um, a lot of problems with horses come from the horse's anxiety. Mm. That what people see as disobedience is really um, the horse saying, I'm nervous. I'm not comfortable with what's going on. And instead of the person saying, oh, I see that. Let's back off a little bit. Let's calm things down and let's approach things from a different angle. Uh, the person says, no, no, I've told you what to do. You better do it right now. And then, of course, the anxiety goes up. So and, and ultimately, if you get a horse who looks like he's bomb proof, what you've often got is a time bomb. You've got a horse who's learned not to show any stress or anxiety. So you don't see the warning signs. And then if he is overwhelmed, he blows up and everybody goes, where did that come from? I've heard that so often, especially in our industry, because I think so many centers go out looking for those, you know, bomb proof, quote unquote, horses. And um, so many times, like you said, they're really just they're not conditioned to think with their brain to make good choices and understand that they're safe and understand that they can trust the humans around them. But rather, like you said, they're, they're just wired to not show that they're nervous. Right. And so that, that is where it gets super confusing and where I think for um, centers trying to tease out what actually is a horse that's, you know, seasoned and conditioned and trusting versus a horse that, that is like that, you know, time bomb, quote unquote. <laughs> yes, it can be really hard to tell because the, the differences can be kind of subtle between a horse who's just looking relaxed and confident versus one who's just zoned out. Mm -hmm. and, then and then where their when their attention finally comes to the here and now their their brains not thinking what oh, I right. always <laughs> Yeah. Yes. What I want is a horse who's thinking and he might not always say, yes, ma'am, I'll do exactly what you say every minute. He may be thinking, you know, like, well, you told me to step over here, but my rider is unbalanced this way. So I need to stay under my rider. And this is what we want is the horse who's thinking and looking out for people. When is a horse most likely to look out for people? When he feels safe. Mm -hmm. When he feels like people are looking out for him and he understands his job. You know, speaking of that, I had an in, an incredible moment last night where I was in the arena teaching um, and I had a participant that when we came around a corner and they got a little bit off center, well, then my horse wanted to track a little bit to the right, you know, and so then I was looking at that and I'm like, I could see my leader, like letting him track to the right a little bit, you know, giving him the freedom to do that. And she's a fantastic horse leader. And um, so I just said, let's stop and look at what's going on here. And sure enough, he they were off just a little bit to the right. And that horse was trying to tell us, I need to be under my rider, right? And I think so many yeah. times, so many times that situation could have gone differently where the leader says, no, get over here. You know, I want you to be, you know, 
in this position and this is what we're supposed to be doing when if we give our horses a chance to tell us what's going on as long as we're all safe right and we're we're educated and trained enough to see those signs we can help everybody stay safe and much more successful right <laughs> exactly yes and i think too when we have um when we have the adversarial you know I'm, i've got to be boss scenario surely that's not the best thing for most of your clients I, as a riding instructor, I see that sometimes the people who are most intuitively uh, sensitive to a horse are beginners. They're, they haven't been ingrained with you have to be boss. So they sometimes have some very, very good insights into what their horse is thinking and feeling. Mm -hmm. And I would think that's also better for, for interpersonal relationships. Uh, if you talk about uh, horsemanship being good for people to take out into the the wider world and their social relationships with people. Do we want to teach them the I have to be boss model, or do we want to teach them the tune in with empathy to the other individual and let's work together model? Mm -hmm. And I think it would give people more confidence than saying to them, you know, these horses are big and strong and they want to be in charge and you have to be very careful not to get hurt, as opposed to Yes, they're big and strong and they could hurt you by accident. So we have lots of safety rules, but they won't hurt you on purpose. We just need right. to make sure clear. Hi, Miss Shelby. Hi. We'll pause and let Shelby join us. How are you? Good. Sorry, I'm late. No, you're fine. So anyway, Lynn, I'll let you continue. This is Shelby. Hi. Hi, Shelby. <laughs> um, yeah, so so I wanted to make it really clear that protector leadership is not like my personal training program. It, it, it's it's the culmination of years of research when I wanted to know what, what can we do to make horses' lives better, to make them more reliable partners, as opposed to obedient servants, which is one of the, the goals of, of a lot of training programs. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think that, that being, being a protector leader is a blueprint for helping, um, helping horses wor work better and helping people be safer with them and, and improving the horse's emotional welfare because I, I based it all on what um, what's research show us and what have been the successes of other trainers working with horses. Mm -hmm. And the foundation of it really is um, earning the horse's trust, showing the horse you're safe with me. And a lot of people talk about this taking a long, long time to bond with a horse but you can actually show a horse he's safe with you in the first 10 seconds you meet him. And this is the kind of thing that doesn't often get taught overtly to people. A lot of people, and, and I think you've done this, Katie, a lot of people intuitively tune into the horse's emotional state and respond to it. That's why you were getting that, that clear, the horse taking care of the rider who was getting off balance. Mm -hmm. That horse feels taken care of by you, knows that you're going to be looking out for him. So he's then able to look out for his rider. And a lot of people do that intuitively, but what I tried to do is characterize specific steps for people who may not be clear on how do you make this happen mm -hmm. or how do you teach somebody else to do it.
This podcast is sponsored in part by Wooden Horse Corporation and the Equisizer. The Equisizer, a handcrafted, non-motorized mechanical horse, is currently being used by hundreds of equine assisted services programs worldwide. The Equisizer requires no electricity, tools, or maintenance and can be used anywhere, indoors or out, for evaluations, warm-ups, stretching before lessons, mounting and dismounting practice, emergency procedures, or volunteer training. The Equisizer can also aid in reducing fear and building confidence for both students, clients, and volunteers. It can easily carry the weight of two adults, offering the option to ride tandemly for those riders who may need more support. To learn more about the Equisizer for your equine-assisted activities, visit Equisizer.com. That's E-Q-U-I-C-I-Z-E-R.com. And the, the first step is just um, show the horse when you first meet him that you respect his personal space. It's like so simple, but you've probably seen lots of people do it. You see a, a horse, you just walk up and grab his lead line, gla- grab his reins. I've seen people walk up, grab the reins, stick their foot in the stirrup, never say hello to the horse, never introduce themselves. And most horses learn to tolerate this, but horses um, natural social order says you're supposed to at least acknowledge that you're entering somebody else's personal space first. And that makes and so- sense. I think at Hetra, we try um, we try hard to respect our horse's personal space, not only with our volunteers and our, our instructors, but also our participants. You know, we teach them like the horse handshake, we call it, where like they offer kind of their knuckles, you know, and say hi and um, let them smell them. You know, we don't just like bum rush in and rub them right on the nose, right? Like we kind of give them the opportunity to enter our personal space. And I think that's something that's we value here. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and that's perfect. So your, yours is the kind of program that I was looking at going, yes, this is what works for horses. Mm-hmm. This is how we get reliable horses. Um, so when horses feel that we're a safe place to be, then they want to be with us. Mm-hmm. Then they're not so hard to catch. They're, it's more comfortable for them to be groomed. The next, the next thing that, that and I, I, I came up with basically a list of characteristics mm-hmm. that, that work. And I'm guessing that you are already doing most of these based on, on the success that I'm hearing about your program. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, the, the second one is, is using clear body language. So many people lead a horse based on uh, pressure. You start walking and when the horse feels the pressure on his lead, then he goes with you. And then when you stop, he walks to the end of the lead and stops when he feels the pressure. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not the best way to coordinate with a horse or to t- keep a horse tuned into. He doesn't have to tune in, in other words. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, I didn't really feel any pressure on my lead, so I can just like daydream here. But if you ask the horse to lead based on watching your body language, then he has to stay tuned in. Mm-hmm. And using body language, I like to use the body language that invites horses to stay with you mm-hmm. instead of the pressure body language. So a lot of people say, oh, I'm using body language. I put him in a round pen and I do this or I wave my rope or my whip or whatever, and he moves. But that's all body language says, go away, go away. If you want the horse to want to be with you, you use body language that says, come with me. Let's walk together. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. If you think about it, horses don't, um, when horses are establishing dominance over another horse, that has to do with resource guarding, not leadership. Mm 
Yeah. And and the chasing is the kind of thing horses do when they're resource guarding. The horses who are friends who are comfortable together don't chase each other, except to maybe say, "Hey, you're you're in my hay pile. Scoot over that away, please." <laughs> they don't make a point of doing a lot of chasing, and they don't establish their leadership that way. <clears throat> so then I. So, a question about like, so if you're in a round pen or something like that, like your example, what's your perspective on the difference between I'm being the boss and I want you to respect me? Um, I think those those might be different issues. Resource guarding is something that we see a lot in domestic courses where you have a confined space, right. individuals who are not well known to each other necessarily, and introduced food. So that there's a like a a precious resource mm -hmm. that everybody wants. Because in the wild, you don't have concentrated resources. If there's not much grass, then you just spread out further. You right. go to the creek, drink, you pick your spot. Um, so what Sue McDonald, the behaviorist, calls the, the horses who guard the food and, and so on, um, she says, yes, they're dominant, but that's not the dominance that leads the group. There's a difference between dominance and leadership. Mm. And leaders are followed because they have the social connections mm -hmm. that make everybody feel safe. So in in the wild, when a horse decides she's going to go off to a different pasture, di different grazing area or a different shelter or something, um, when she starts moving, how many other horses follow her depends on how many friends she has, how many social connections she has. So we want to be the one with all the social connections so that all the horses want to be with us and, and follow us. Mm -hmm. um, in the round pen, that's saying you want to be dominant. I'm, I'm saying I want you to get away from me. Um, and usually when horses say, when, when horses chase each other and make them run, as opposed to like, please step out of my personal space here. But when horses actually make another horse run, usually that means I don't really want you to come back. Mm-hmm. That's not saying I want you to come back and follow me because I'm going to be your leader. It just means go away and don't come back. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Right. So teaching people to round pen a horse in that sense of having them move around a round pen is not um, that that does not establish leadership. That's been pretty well documented in um, uh, in research studies. In fact, somebody used radio controlled cars in a round pen and the horses ultimately followed the cars because they found out that when they followed the cars the cars stopped chasing them so how do you and, so in in my um per, or history i guess in my experience i've noticed that like like i started a young horse and the more i round the more i i guess i would call it round penning the more i round penned him the more i feel like like when he joined up with me and he is like willing to follow me and, and do that type of thing, how, you know what I mean? And you see some changes in behavior ultimately. Right. So what are your perspectives on that? Or Shelby, I don't know if you have any. Well, and just, just knowing what you did when you started that horse, I think the thing you have to keep in mind is that's not the only thing you did. So right. like you were working on moving his feet and moving him and asking him to come in and join up, but you were also doing a lot of other work that was, that was closer, slower, more mm -hmm. like relationship work and not just run away. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes people can get into trouble. I agree with what you're saying, Lynn, when all they do is round pen and they just chase them around. And the purpose of it is 
just to chase them around. Right. Um, that's not, and, and I think we see that I have a mayor at home that, um, a lot of people say, oh, she's the boss mayor. Well, yeah, she's the boss mayor because she's going to take all the food, but she's not truly a boss mayor. Like they, she doesn't really have any friends. Mm-hmm. They're just people just get out of her way because not people, horses get out of her <laughs> way because they know if they don't, they're going to be in trouble. Right. Right. Yeah. I, that's, that's a perfect example yeah. of, mm-hmm. of goes. And we don't want to be that kind of boss. Right. Exactly. Because right. it needs the horse. And, and that's, and that's another thing that's shown up pretty consistently in studies. If people use only that negative reinforcement in working with horses, then those horses don't want to be with people. Mm-hmm. And most people really want the horses who want to come to us. And and I, I think um, as you describe what you did, Katie, you were clearly doing other things with your horse besides the round pen work. And I expect too, you did not overdo it. Once she learned that you wanted her to follow you, you stopped. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have the the extra what what the heck am I being chased for right um trauma really which a lot of horses end up suffering from mm-hmm. sorry I mean to derail our conversation uh, <laughs> you can... not at all. I think that that was a, a really important direction to go yeah so what's step three in your process of helping <laughs> horses feel safe um listen to them just watch their watch their emotions mm-hmm. It's kind of been popular in some areas to say, well, that's anthropomorphic. Well, it's not at all. All mammals share the same seven core emotions. That's That's been clearly established. Um, the work of Jacques Ponsep was very important in that. He was, in fact, in the 90s, he was a, the uh, original neuroscientist who studied brain chemistry and found and, and demonstrated beyond anybody's arguing anymore, demonstrated that all mammals share the same seven core emotions and that behavior then of course follows the emotions. So if we watch a horse's emotions, we get a good sense of what behavior is going to happen. So when you see a horse who's very anxious and tense and you're acknowledging that fact, then you're not gonna be surprised if that horse then suddenly bucks with the rider. Whereas the rider might be going, where where'd that come from? What what why'd he do that if the rider wasn't paying attention to mm. that? And I have seen I have seen this happen in a clinic where a horse was clearly very stressed and upset by his rider who couldn't sit the trot bouncing on his back. And about half an hour into the lesson, the horse had been incredibly tolerant and fu- finally just let out a little buck, like to say, Hey, I'm really getting upset here. Mm-hmm. And the rider and the clinician said, where'd that come from? So even people who have a high level of technical skill, and sometimes those people are the worst, overlook the horse's emotions. So I have a question. I think that's something that we are always thinking about at Hetra is how do we get our new therapists or new instructors that come to our center to be more in tune to those horse emotions and like subtle signs and things like that of like just you know, when to discontinue an activity or, a you know, something like that. Do you have any advice for getting people more in tune to horse emotions? Oh, I, I wish I had some magic ideas there because <laughs> I think it's really hard. We, we've been told for so many years, well, you have to be in charge, move the feet, watch the feet, make the horse do what you told them to do. And so people are really taught overtly to tune out the horse's emotions. And 
so and at the same time we're told that if we tune into their emotions we say wait we need to slow down he's getting nervous we're getting we get told uh the horse has to be obedient you're, you're going to get yourself hurt if you don't make that horse obey you mm. so i think a lot of people especially more advanced people get really conditioned to tuning out emotions so how you get them to tune in i think First, maybe they need to have some sense of um, uh, some willingness to shift gears and say, okay, behavior is a result of emotions. That's, that's, just, that's just biology. All behavior is prompted by an emotion. If I can look for that emotion before the behavior happens, then I can guess what the behavior is going to be. And then you can look at your horse Go, go ahead, Shelby, you had something to say? I, I was just going to say, I think it's I think it's hours and hours and hours and hours of intentionally watching for that for those emotions. Mm -hmm. It's it has to be, like you said, Lynn, um, very intentional observation of those emotions and of those behaviors and of those reactions that horses have. But it takes thousands of hours to do it. And I've had people ask me that for years. Well, how did you, how do you get to be so intuitive? Well, I've watched horses for thousands and thousands and thousands <laughs> of hours. I, and I don't, I'm in the same boat. And I don't know how you teach it faster. You mm -hmm. just, and some people are naturally more intuitive than others, but it's, it's time. It's mm -hmm. just time and time and time. I don't think you can cheat the system, unfortunately. <laughs> like so many other important things it takes right. time to learn it but i i do see that uh, a lot of people who are new to horses are very intuitive because they haven't been taught to tune it out so they won't see the subtle levels that you do but they will have some sense of whether the horse's emotion is positive or negative mm -hmm. you know is the body going tense um or is the horse looking relaxed and tuned in and that's the most important thing for people to, to look at is, is, the, is the emotion positive or negative? Um, because the negative emotions are, um, are panic uh, or grief and rage and anxiety, fear. And usually fear is the one that you see first, unless you have, you have separation anxiety, that's, that's the emotion grief technically. Um, and I'm guessing you probably don't have to deal with a lot of separation anxiety because you've got horses working more or less in clo close proximity. So most often, if somebody's seeing a negative emotion, they're going to be seeing anxiety. And it doesn't have to be uh, very difficult to deal with that. Very often, all you have to do about anxiety is pause and give the horse a minute to think things through or give yourself a moment to assess the situation. And so I think one thing we can tell people who are new at this is that it rarely hurts to just pause and give the horse a minute to breathe, breathe with him, think about what's going on. Um, but, and I have seen, I've seen beginners come up with some very intuitive uh, interpretations. I had a student one time whose horse was just slower than molasses one day. Everything she did, the horse was in slow motion. And so I finally said to her, I said, what do you think is going on here? And she said, I think sunshine is going slow to take care of me because I don't feel good today. And that was exactly what I was seeing. And this was somebody who was like lesson number six. So I think if we encourage it and then you're modeling it too, Shelby, that's, that's super important. Mm -hmm. You model that 
And if you comment to people and interpret what you're seeing, then you're giving them the tools to see and the language to interpret and talk about it. Yeah, I think that's something important that we should, you know, all be doing as instructors and therapists in the arena is, you know, I do it. We always do a check in with them, with my participant, like, how are you feeling today? How was school or, you know, whatever, you know, and then I always ask, like, how's sunshine feeling today? What do you think? You know, kind of like, well, her ears look relaxed or her body feels, you know, loose or whatever, like just kind of giving them language to observe those things. I think helps our participants feel more comfortable and educated, but also like gives them the tools that they need to, you know, be successful. Yes. And at the same time, you're encouraging their empathy Mm -hmm. for another individual, which is going to serve them well in life in general. Right. What's the next step? Well, next step is one where, um, and this, this ties into your horses needing to learn to deal with a lot of different things. And that is using using learning modes that engage learning intelligence. Um, conditioned response, the pressure release sort of thing. We can't get away from that. that that's an absolute integral part of horsemanship. You know, you, if, you, if you don't have pressure, you don't have any way to give your horse cues when you're riding. So I'm not trying to get rid of, of negative reinforcement. We'll always need that. But horses have three other ways they learn. They learn through positive reinforcement, also through social learning and investigative behavior. I hate to cut off a good thing. I know you guys are thinking, what are those learning modes? How do we develop the learning modes? What else are we going to learn from Lynn? She has four more characteristics to share with us to um, really engage horses in feeling safe with their people. So come back for next week. Next week's going to be part two, and we're excited to share more of that with you. As a reminder, head over to our Facebook page, our Instagram, our Patreon, and give us a shout out. Let us know what you think about the episode, and we'll see you next week.